Welcome to the New to Jesus podcast, where we find foundational truths to help you take your first steps in your walk with Christ. Hey, this is Dan Bergman, and you're listening to the New to Jesus podcast. In our first episode, we're going to look at John chapter 1. It's often recommended to be the first book that a new believer reads in the scripture, just because it explains Jesus from an eternal perspective to a worldwide audience. And so let's dive right in. So in John chapter 1, verse 1 kind of echoes what we read in Genesis 1-1. Genesis 1-1 being the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here in John 1-1, we read, in the beginning was the word. Now that's an interesting term. It's the word that we get our English word logo from. And if you didn't know this already, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And the Old Testament, the the Hebrew Bible, was originally written in Hebrew. And so when we get to the New Testament, the spoken language of the world at the time, the worldwide language of commerce, was Greek. And so, we read, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is a very amazing verse that describes to us from the very beginning Jesus' relationship with God the Father. We'll read later in verse number 14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, we don't use the word begotten a lot today in our English, but it has the idea of being born. When a woman gives birth, she has begotten a child. And so when we read in John chapter 1 and verse 1, Along with verse 14, we recognize that the Word, the Logos, is Jesus, the Son of God. Now, the Trinity is a hard subject to really try and understand for us to grasp our minds around because we don't really have anything similar to compare it to. But the idea of the Trinity, now the word Trinity itself is not in the Bible, but the concept is. And that simply is the idea that God is one God represented in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. We don't believe in multiple gods. We don't believe in a plurality of gods. We believe in one God who is manifested in three persons. The second person of the Trinity, as we refer to him, is the Son of God. Jesus. Now, all three of these, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are eternal. They've always been. They've never been created. And when we read about the Word of God, the Logos of God, we're recognizing that it's speaking of Jesus. But what's interesting is, what do we do with words? What is, what is a logo? Words are how we communicate with people whether through the spoken word or the written word 
or if you know somebody who is deaf, through sign language. That is how we communicate with each other. The Word of God is how God communicates with us. I hear a lot of different things from a lot of different people who believe different stuff about how God communicates with us today. There's good people out there that believe that God speaks to us today through dreams and visions and prophecy and that you can hear his voice audibly telling you to do something. I personally don't ascribe to that belief. Based on scripture, I personally believe that God speaks to us today through his word, the Bible. The Bible says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, meaning God breathed those words into the penman who wrote it down. And not to get into a lengthy discussion right now, because you most likely just trusted Jesus as your Savior. Just know this, this simple truth, that God speaks to us today primarily through his word, the Bible, the scripture. He also speaks to us through his spirit in, internally, but it's not like we hear an audible voice. It's more of a leading. It's more of a prompting. It's more of a peace. Or if there's something that's in our life that shouldn't be there, the Holy Spirit speaks to us through conviction, making us feel uneasy about doing something that we know we shouldn't do. But a logo, which is what this word comes from, is how companies and businesses represent themselves to the world. Now, this is an audio podcast. I can't show you a picture right now, but just imagine the McDonald's logo, something that is recognized worldwide, that little M, okay, the golden arches, or the Nike swoosh. Those images, those logos, or for instance, the Apple logo, they represent that company. They represent everything that company stands for, and they're how that company is communicated to the world through a single entity. Jesus is the Logos of God the Father. This is why later in the book of John, Jesus tells one of his disciples named Philip, he tells Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Just like we read in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. He was always there. Jesus was not created. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're all eternal. And to share with you something that's interesting, even when we go back into the book of Genesis and we talk about, in the beginning, God... The word God in Hebrew is Elohim. Elohim is plural, but we're not talking about multiple gods. We're talking about a compound unity. And God even says in the book of Genesis, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, some in the Jewish faith would say that that's either God in the heavenly host, all the angels, 
Or it's just a plurality of majesty, meaning that God is so magnificent that he uses like the royal we, okay? But I don't believe that's the case here. It's literally a plurality in unity. One God, three persons, all three of which were active in the creation of the universe. And so, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. This communicates to us the concept of the Trinity. And then in verse 14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Word, didn't always have a human body. He didn't always have flesh. And that's the amazing thing about what we refer to as the incarnation, where Jesus became man, where he took on flesh in the womb of Mary. And so Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Now, if any of you are mathematicians, you're probably, you know, pulling your hair out right now that I said that. Dan, that's 200%. I know it doesn't make sense, but God does not have to make sense. He is transcendent. He is above our understanding and our finite logic. Jesus was totally God, 100%. And he was also 100% man, yet without sin. Jesus wasn't a demigod. He wasn't like Hercules. He's fully God in a human body. And so verse 2 says, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Do you realize that this just tells us right now that God chose to create everything through the Son. And what's interesting is in Genesis chapter 1, how does God create everything? The Bible says, and God said, let there be light. Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven. Let there be grass. Let there be beasts. Let there be fowls in the air. And so how did God create everything? By the word of his mouth. He spoke it into existence. And we read here that the word of God took on flesh and became one of us. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. There's an interesting concept in the Bible of life and death. We think of life and death today as having a pulse. And when that pulse stops, when that heartbeat ceases, you become clinically dead. You're no longer alive. That's why we can say in medical terms that somebody was dead and then they were revived. But biblically, death is a different kind of idea and life is a different kind of idea. Life is not only having a pulse, biblically. 
Life is the fullness of blessing associated with the presence of God and being connected to God. That's why God told Adam, the day that you eat from that tree that he planted in the Garden of Eden, he said, in the day thou eatest thereof, in the very day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. Did Adam, did Adam keel over dead the second that he bit from that fruit? No. In fact, in Genesis 5, 5, it says, and Adam lived 930 years and he died. He died physically. He ceased to have a pulse physically. But all those years ago, the very second that he bit from that fruit, guess what happened? He died spiritually. Meaning the connection that he had to the life giver was severed. The very moment that he ate from that fruit. And the same thing goes for Eve. And so today, I mean, we're all descendants of Adam and Eve. When we're born, we're born spiritually dead, meaning we're spiritually disconnected from the life giver. And the instant that Adam ate from that fruit, he was disconnected from God. His body began to decay, and his cells and his body began to die. And it's only 930 years later that we find that the final result from being disconnected from the life giver is physical death. Listen to this verse again. Verse 4. In him, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Now, is, is, is darkness intrinsically evil? Not necessarily, but it does symbolize evil in the scripture. Light symbolizes righteousness, and darkness symbolizes evil. You can even see this carried out in the movies that we watch today. So often, light is the good side, right? And then you have like the dark side of the force. And so we have good and evil, light and darkness. The Bible says that men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They didn't want to be caught. They didn't want to be seen doing wicked things. That's why so often people don't do nasty, sinful, horrible things in broad daylight. They do it in the darkness. And the Bible says, the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. The majority of this world has rejected Jesus as who the Bible portrays him to be. There's many that might claim to follow him, 
but they're really not following him at all. They're following a man-made set of traditions that actually contradicts the Jesus of the Bible. And so, in this dark place, this world full of spiritual darkness and spiritual death and sin and wickedness, when Jesus came into the world, not when he was created, Jesus was not created, he's God, he's eternal. But when he took on a human body and entered into mankind, the light shined into the darkness. And the darkness comprehended it not. Now, in verse 6, we're introduced to another John, okay? Not the John that wrote the Gospel of John, not the man who wrote this book of the Bible that we are reading, but a man named John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was not like necessarily uh, an independent Baptist or a Southern Baptist or an American Baptist. We're not talking about the Baptist denomination. We're talking about John who baptized people. In verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. John the Baptist had really one job, and it was to point people to Jesus, to announce Jesus' coming to the entire world, and specifically the Jewish world, the religious crowd, the Jewish people of Galilee in north of Israel, as well as the Judean Jews in the south of Israel. He was announcing the coming of the Messiah. Now, Messiah is based on a Hebrew word, Mashiach, which means the anointed one, the one that God would anoint specifically for the special purpose of delivering his people from their sin. This is detailed in Isaiah chapter 53, as well as in Daniel chapter 9, where it talks about the Messiah dying, but not for himself, but for the sins of his people, as we read in Isaiah 53. The word Christ is synonymous with the word Messiah. Remember how I said back at the beginning that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, what the Jewish people refer to as the Tanakh, was written in Hebrew, and so we have things like the word Mashiach, Messiah. The New Testament was written in Greek. Guess what the Greek word for Messiah is? It's Christos, or as we have in English, Christ. It's actually the same word, but gone through a couple of different translations based upon the Hebrew to the Greek to the English. And so Christ is not Jesus's last name. It's his title, the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And so John was there to bear witness of the light, to bear witness to the world, to be a testimony of telling them who Jesus is. He was not that light, John the Baptist, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. What does that mean? What does it mean that, that Jesus is the true light that lights every man that comes into the world? 
Well, there's a passage in the book of Romans that talks about how all of creation testifies to mankind that there is a God and that they are without excuse before this God. That's what theologians refer to as general revelation, meaning it reveals enough to us about God through creation. It reveals enough for us to understand that there is a God, there is a creator. The heavens declare the glory of God, the psalm says. But it's not enough for us to be saved simply by looking at a tree or looking at the stars in the sky. It's enough to condemn us. That's general revelation. I believe that's what this is speaking about here, the true light that lights every man that comes into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him. Can you imagine this? The creator of everything becomes one of us. And it says, and the world knew him not. The majority of the people that have lived either have not known Jesus or they've rejected who the Bible teaches him to be. He came unto his own, speaking of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, okay, so like the nation of Israel as a whole, nationally has rejected Jesus as their Messiah. But we see thousands and thousands of Jewish people in the pages of the New Testament recognizing Jesus as their Messiah and trusting in him. And so it's not that all Jewish people have rejected him. My dad, who was Jewish, uh, recently, in 2019, received Jesus as his Messiah and Savior, recognizing that he is the promised Messiah of the Hebrew Bible. And so Jewish people can trust Jesus as their Messiah. In fact, it's the most logical decision that a Jewish person can make. Not only was Jesus Jewish, I mean, he was of the house and lineage of David, born in Bethlehem. All of these things are prophesied. But his followers were also Jewish. And every single book of the New Testament was written by a Jewish person. Even Luke, I believe, was Jewish. Um, and so when we read in the book of John, Everybody's Jewish, for the most part. Everybody. Um, those that believe in Jesus, those that reject him. Those that are preaching the gospel, and those that are rejecting it. It's a Jewish culture. And so when we see the word, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, it's not talking about all of the Jewish people in Israel, but specifically the Jewish religious leadership in Judea who were rejecting Jesus because he was a threat to their power and position. And so moving on. But as many as received him, Jewish or non-Jewish, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. This is the first instance in the book of John where we get an inkling into how we are reconnected with God, how we are reconciled with God, 
how that relationship is restored, how we obtain forgiveness and salvation. It's through believing that Jesus is who he says he is. And then it says of those that believe on Jesus in verse 13, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Meaning that those that believe in Jesus are born spiritually, born of God, the moment that they trust him as their savior. Remember how I talked back a while ago about life and death? And that how when sin entered into the world, it severed us from the life giver. We became spiritually dead. In Adam, all died. And since we are all descendants of Adam, we are born spiritually dead. When you trust Jesus as your Savior, believing that he died and rose again for you, the Bible says that that moment you breathe your first breath of spiritual life. You become spiritually alive, born again born spiritually. In verse 14 that we already talked about, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. John the apostle who was writing this gospel account was an eyewitness to Jesus's earthly ministry. And we beheld his glory, John says, the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him, speaking of John the Baptist, and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh before me is preferred before me, for he was before me. He's talking about Jesus. And of his fullness have we all received grace for grace, or grace upon grace. Grace is unmerited favor. We didn't earn it. But it's through our faith in Jesus that God grants us, God imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus. That's grace. That's unearned merit, undeserved favor. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, the law is not bad. The law is a good thing, meaning the Ten Commandments, and there's multiple, there's so much more than ten. <laughs> if you look through the books of Moses, the Torah, the first five books of our Bible, the rabbis say that there's 613 commandments throughout the books of Moses, not just ten. But what the law does is it shows us our need for a Savior. It shows us our sin. The Bible says that the law was our schoolmaster or our teacher to bring us to Christ, to bring us to saving faith in Jesus. We can't be found if we don't recognize that we're lost. We can't be saved if we don't recognize that we're sinners. And that's what the law does for us. But the Bible says that the law was given by Moses, but grace, unmerited favor, and truth came by Jesus Christ. Not that the law wasn't true. Not that what Moses teaches us isn't true. It absolutely is. But this verse has an idea of the culmination of the truth, the capstone on the truth of Scripture. 
the completion of the truth of God's word came through Jesus. And the Bible says in verse number 18, No man hath seen God at any time. You might not realize this, but the Bible says in John chapter 4, which we'll get to in a further episode, that God is a spirit, meaning he's invisible. God the Father, unless he decides to make himself seen through some kind of thing, like the burning bush appearing to Moses, God himself cannot be seen. We read elsewhere in Scripture that if one were to look upon God, like straight upon him, were able to see him, that they would die, that they would perish. But the Bible says, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. That simply means that Jesus, the Son of God, and the Father are one. And Jesus is how we see God. Verse number 19, it says, And this is the record of John, John the Baptist, when the Jews, not the Jewish people as a whole, not the descendants of Abraham as a whole, but the Jewish religious leadership. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? So the Jewish religious leadership in Judah, in the south of Israel, they sent priests and Levites to see who in the world this John the Baptist was. Verse 20, And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He tells them plainly, I am not the Messiah. I don't claim to be the Messiah. But John was preparing the world for when the Messiah would show up. And they asked him, What then, art thou Elijah? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. There's a couple of different instances in the scripture where the Bible talks about Elijah, and we'll get to that later when we cross that passage in scripture about Elijah. And then it says, Art thou that prophet? I believe this is a reference to Deuteronomy, when Moses said that the Lord would raise up a prophet like unto him, like unto Moses, and that the people would be accountable to listen to his words. Now, Jesus is a prophet, but that's not all that he is. Religions like Islam would like us to believe that Jesus was simply a prophet. When we look through the scripture, when we look through the Bible, Jesus is so much more than that. He's God. He's the creator. He's not only a prophet, but he's also our great high priest. And he is king of kings. And in verse 21, John says, no, I'm, I'm not that prophet. Then they said unto him, who art thou? that we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou of thyself? And so they're, they're asking, well, then who in the world are you? We need to be able to give an answer to the people that sent us all the way here. Who are you? And he said, and this is a quote from Isaiah 40, 
I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 40, there's references to one who would cry in the wilderness. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God and preparing people for the coming of the Messiah. John tells them, that's me. I'm the one crying in the wilderness. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elijah, neither that prophet? Now this is interesting. And this is something you probably didn't know unless you have a Jewish background. Baptism isn't something that originated with Christianity. Baptism is actually something that's intrinsic within the Jewish faith all the way back to Leviticus. And it's something called the mikvah. It's a Jewish ritual bath. And this wasn't only used for people, but it was also for items, items that were unclean, and they needed to be ritually cleansed before God. This also has to do with women when they're in their cycle. In order to be pronounced ritually clean and pure before God after that time has ended, so that they are not unclean to other people, they need to go to the mikvah. When somebody does something that makes them unclean, they need to go to the mikvah. Oftentimes, when priests would be consecrated in the Levitical service, in the tabernacle, and the temple, before they would go to do their priestly duties, they had to go to a ritual bath. Now, that doesn't mean that they were dirty physically, and then when they came out, you know, they had to suds themselves up with bubbles and uh, antibacterial hand wash. No, that's not what it's talking about at all. This is a ritual cleansing in the eyes of God. And it was their obedience to what God had said to do that made them ritually pure. And what John the Baptist is doing is that very thing. They didn't say, the Pharisees, they didn't say to John, what is this new thing that you're doing dunking people in the water? And by the way, it was always immersion in the Jewish faith, as well as the Greek word that we get the word baptized from, it means to immerse, to dunk, to dip, to be completely surrounded by water. In fact, in Jewish circles, when they go to the mikvah to be ritually cleansed, it's required that they go entirely under the water. And even the ladies cannot wear their hair in a certain way so that some of their hair does not touch the water, you're supposed to be completely surrounded by the water. Which helps us picture what New Testament baptism is all about. But John's baptism was a little bit different than both of these. John's baptism was trying to get the people ready for the Messiah. They ask him, Why baptizest thou then? Verse 26, John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there standeth one among you whom you know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose. And these things were done in Bethabara beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. 
You see, when John was baptizing people, he was preaching to them to repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to turn from your sin. It means to be sorry enough to have a desire to stop, to see your wickedness, to see your sin as God does. And John was crying out to the people, you need to repent. You need to get right because guess who's coming? Very soon, the Messiah will be here. And in order to show me that you are repentant, come on down to this water and prove it. And so asking them to come down to the water and to be baptized to show their repentance was an outward display of an inward action. And so baptism today for believers is not something to be done to a baby. Because baptism is supposed to symbolize the death and burial of Jesus when we go under the water and the resurrection of Jesus when we come out of the water. And so baptism biblically is for a believer, somebody who is trusted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for their sins. And they are publicly announcing and displaying their identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Baptism doesn't wash away sins. You go under the water a dry sinner and you come out of the water a wet sinner. Baptism doesn't save you. It's a symbol. It's a symbol of what Jesus did for you and you're publicly announcing that you put your faith in him. And so we read in verse 29, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. You see, all throughout the Levitical sacrificial system, lambs were slaughtered, lambs were killed, lambs were sacrificed for the sins of the people. And John says in verse 29, he refers to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me cometh a man who's preferred before me, for he was before me. If you read in the book of Luke, we find the story of where John the Baptist, in chapter 1, his birth is announced. And guess what? It's about six months before Jesus was conceived. John the Baptist is about six months older, physically, than Jesus. But here he says, There cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. Jesus is from eternity past. That's hard to wrap our minds around. But in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, there's a prophecy about the Messiah. And it says, But thou Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me ones whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. The baby that would be born in Bethlehem, that we celebrate at Christmas time, Jesus the Messiah, 
is from eternity past. And so, John says, yeah, he was before me, even though John the Baptist was six months older physically. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist was told by the Lord that the one whom the Spirit of God would descend upon and remain, that one is the one who is the Lamb of God, the one to take away the sins of the world, the Son of God. Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. He says it again. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? This is the first words recorded in the book of John. Jesus talking to two of John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples. And these two disciples were John the writer of this book, and Andrew. So Jesus says to them, What seek ye? And they say unto him, Rabbi. Which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, which in the Jewish reckoning of time, is about 4 p.m. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, or Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Now, this is interesting. Where do we get the word Peter from? Why do we call him Peter? Well, his, his, his given name was Simon, and Jesus gives him an Aramaic name, Cephas. Cephas is Aramaic for a stone. But do you remember how I said that the New Testament was written in Greek, and that the main spoken language in Israel in that time was Greek. The Greek translation of the Aramaic word kephos is Petros. Peter. That's where we get Peter from. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Now this is normal in Jewish circles, especially at this time. There was a common culture of rabbis meaning teachers, teachers of the scripture, and disciples, Talmudim in the Hebrew. And so oftentimes rabbis would travel with a group 
of their followers, their disciples, their students. And so Jesus is calling people to follow him. He first calls John and Andrew, and then Andrew finds Peter, and Peter joins them. And now we see Philip, and Jesus says, follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. All of this is in the north of Israel. And by the way, Israel is a very small country. It's about the size of New Jersey. And so everything is very compacted together, very close. And Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there anything good come out of Nazareth? Joseph was Jesus' earthly father, but he was not his biological father. Jesus was born of a virgin. Mary did not have any kind of sexual relations with anybody until after Jesus was born and she had physical relations with Joseph. Joseph is not Jesus' father. God is his father. Joseph is more like a stepfather. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile, no deceit. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Now, we don't know all the specifics of this situation, but something about Jesus describing that to Nathanael made Nathanael realize that Jesus was the Messiah, that he had to be the Son of God because nobody else would know that. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The term Son of Man is one that we'll address in a later episode, but it was Jesus' favorite phrase to refer to himself. I look forward to the next episode when we get into John chapter 2 together. Thank you so much for listening to the New to Jesus podcast. You can go to our website, newtojesus.com. That's new, the number two, jesus.com. If you'd like to find me on social media, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at danielbergman99. And if you'd like to rate and review this podcast on iTunes, that helps us to get in front of more people to help them take their first steps as new believers in Jesus.